The word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, Thus in the Lord, my beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to see you all this morning. Um, happy first day of November. We had the uh, blue moon last night. I think it was the second moon of October or something. Um, but I'm excited to get into our word uh, this morning. I just wanted to give you all a heads up. I was able to be a part of a conversation in talking about as Christians, uh, how we engage politics, how we uh, deal with the challenges and, and stress and anxiety of this political time, uh, was recorded in, in a conversation with Darlene Kleppel, who is a part of our church and is also the county executive, so she's a local official, uh, with Scott Althaus, who's a professor and um, works in the uh, social sciences and, um, and, and policy and, and whatnot in terms of, from an academic standpoint, um, and Scott Beatty, who is a local radio and, and also engaged in um, covering games and whatnot, but has to cover uh, lots of issues um, locally. And then the director was sort of a, a host. So we got to talk, and that, that video is gonna be released on um, our TCBC family room, which if you're not a part of that, I encourage you to sign up on that. You can look online, I think, to get more details. And it's also gonna be in our, um, YouTube. So, so that's that. Um, but we are going to turn our attention to the Word of God. I encourage you to open your Bibles and uh, mute your screens. And uh, let's go to the Lord and worship. I'm going to pray as I transition into the message. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, help us be hearers of your Word and doers of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So as we, uh, you know, very aware of the season. Um, this particular scripture passage talks about our citizenship in heaven. It is appropriate that we address on some levels how we engage in this political uh, season and the other anxieties that we're facing. The, the title of this message is Citizens of Heaven. We're continuing our Rooted series and what it means to be rooted in Christ despite all the challenges that we face um, and as we think about, well, what does it mean to be citizens? Paul has three important things to say here, uh, that we would imitate Christ followers, not just Jesus himself and not just the word Christ followers, that we would await the king, our true king, that we would hope in true renewal. So imitate Christ followers, await the king in true renewal. Let's look at 
the first point, imitate Christ followers. Paul says in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul has this imitation theology, and I don't mean like when you're baking, you have imitation vanilla and then the real extract. Imitation in that part of what means to follow Jesus is to have real flesh and blood people that we would imitate in understanding how to do that. Um, a few weeks celebrated as a family, uh, our oldest child, Josiah, his birthday, and we made New York style pizza. Started making pizza years ago. And if you're familiar with making pizza, if you've ever made it on your own, or perhaps you've not made it, I could give you the recipe and you could measure out the flour and know when to add the oil and how long to knead the dough. But when it comes to actually working the dough after it has done its proof and getting it ready as a pizza and roll, you know, push, kneading it out and all that stuff. By the way, I don't do that. My wife does that. Um, I could not tell you the directions or the, the directions, written directions wouldn't help you. You actually need to see somebody do it to, to fully get how that works. Um, I remember as a fifth grader trying to do an assignment where, where the assignment was can, is to get up in front of the class and explain how you do something. You know, well, in some instances, writing instructions, written instructions are helpful. In other instances, it's actually too challenging to write it out. So I, I, uh, I picked my assignment. I'm supposed to get up in the class and explain uh, how this works. I thought, okay, I wanna, I wanna explain basketball, the game of basketball. I love basketball um, at the time, you know, college basketball. And so as I tried to do that assignment, I quickly realized that is way too complicated to write out that I could explain that. And so I picked how to make a cup of coffee much more easy to lay that out. Why is it that written instructions are helpful in some cases, but in other cases of physical demonstration is better? The game of basketball, I played basketball, I, I went to clinics and I played on a high school basketball team and learned how to be a better basketball player by watching other basketball players, not by reading about basketball. Why is it that certain instructions are helpful or certain, certain cases, instructions are helpful that are written, but in others, it's a physical demonstration that we need. It is because for certain tasks and procedures, it's easier to follow written directions, you know, just a simple task, a recipe, uh, uh, directions. How do you get from point A to B? But for a lifestyle or for something that's a complicated action, you know, like if I would say a dance routine, it's easier to learn it by watching someone else. So how do we learn how to be a Christian? The gospel, of course, is central to us learning, not only learning, but even becoming a Christian. Um, and so the gospel, which by the way, is not about us, but is about what Jesus did for us. The gospel message does require words. There's no way to demonstrate the gospel, because the, the gospel is not something that humans did. The gospel is something God did for us. The gospel requires that we hear or read uh, or have someone preach to us uh, what it is and what it means 
for us. We can't learn the gospel by looking at botany or studying the stars. We can learn lots of other attributes about God, but to learn about his free offering of grace and the redemption that comes through Jesus, we have to have access to a written or verbal communication. But in terms of how do we respond to the gospel? Yes, we need the Bible and we that is our ultimate source, the standard, the norm for all norms. But we also need other people. We need other believers. We need those that are following Christ to be imitators of. I think about how I learned how to pray. I've read a lot of books about prayer, but how did I really learn how to pray? I've, I've learned to pray with other people. I think about my family, in fact, as as a family, we try to do family worship in, at night, getting ready for bed and doing reading the Bible and praying. And it's so uh, it's so funny to watch, but also just uh, heartwarming how our kids have developed in their prayers, how our older two kids, Josiah is 12 and Abby, who's nine, and thinking about how Maddie, who's five, and Sally, who's two. And so there's a lot that they learn from each other. They learn from us. They learn from each other. Uh, and, and Maddie, you know, she'll be praying and, and thanking God for the day and pray, Lord, help us to not fight, help us to have a good attitude, help us to obey. Solomon, he's two years old, help us have a good day, help us to not fight. Those are their, those are their prayers. Why? Because they're imitating each other. And as Christians, we learn how to do things by imitating one another. As I've gotten to know folks here in the church and showing up on prayer meetings on, on Wednesday night via Zoom and praying with some of our LC members and praying with our shepherding team, praying with our staff. I pick up ways that folks, you know, Lynn, who's the chair of our um, LC team, how she prays, or Neilan, the chair of our shepherding team, and how he prays, and our other shepherds and our other LC members and our staff. And, and so as Christians, we learn by imitating. We learn by seeing real examples. And Paul calls us to follow his example, the example of others that are following Jesus Christ. Our discipleship as Christians is both didactic, in other words, we learn by teaching what I'm doing right now, but we also learn by seeing other people. In fact, my ministry as a pastor is a call to do both. In 1 Timothy 4, 11 and 12 in verse 16, Paul tells Timothy, so Paul is talking to Timothy, who is referenced in this letter that we're reading in Philippians. Timothy, who was his son in the Lord, Timothy, who was now pastor in, in 1 Timothy over the church in Ephesus. Paul tells Timothy, he says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise your, you, your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is a pastor. Timothy was a pastor of a church. And Paul is saying to him, you need to be thinking about what I've taught you and teach those things, but you also need to be thinking about how you live and your life needs to be an example for other believers because we learn how to be a Christian by imitating other Christians, as well as by learning doctrine and theology and all the things that we derive from scripture. Why is it so important 
that we imitate those who follow Christ. What's at stake? Paul goes on to say in verse 18, back in Philippians, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. What a powerful statement and phrase. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? And what is so, so delineating about that, that term or that reality? The cross is the most humbling reality in all of human existence, all of human history. The cross of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross, it is humbling because as we know, everyone acknowledges something is wrong with the world. And in the political season, people have very sharp distinctions about what is wrong and who's at fault. But the gospel tells us actually What's wrong with the world is not those other people over there in their ideology and their practices. What's wrong with the world is all of us, our sinfulness. And the message of the cross is so humbling because it says our situation is much worse than we would like to acknowledge. It required the son of God to die to even make things right. And in doing so, only for those who fully believe in him, who believe in him, who trust in him, who turn to him and put their hope in him. The cross is a humbling message. And for those who are enemies of the cross, they are lessening the idea of what it means to be a sinner and saying it really isn't that bad. Or perhaps they're saying that there is some other way we could justify ourselves. Or perhaps they're saying, I'm just gonna go full-fledged into what I desire and what I want. But whatever the case may be, and scholars aren't fully sure which of those groups Paul is referencing here, they were enemies of the cross. And Paul saying the, the word that sort of starts that um, verse for many is a word of causal um, a, a conjunction. It's basically saying, why should you imitate those who, like myself, follow Jesus and others who follow Jesus, because there's other people who are following a different path. And if you're not intentional about whom you follow, you will be following and imitating someone. Paul is contra contrasting how he walks as a follower of Christ and those who walk as enemies of the cross. And he draws a line and he says, you should imitate those who follow Jesus. He further talks about what these individuals, men and women who are enemies of the cross are like in verse 19, he gives characteristics um, that their end is, is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their mindset is earthly. And really three characteristics. They're in his destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Earlier in the same chapter, Paul gives three characteristics of what it means to be um, true believers, true followers of the faith. We are the circumcision, circumcision who worship by the spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. These are very different descriptions and characteristics of those who 
minds are set on earthly things. They are enemies of the cross, um, which can mean that their desires, their ideas, their opinions become their ultimate guide. In other words, it is a picture of idolatry. They glory in their shame. Glory was a term in the Old Testament that was synonymous with God himself because God is ultimate glory and he is glorious. And the fact that they glory in their shame, the shame would be the shame of idols, the shame of idolatry. And that idolatry could cover lots of different maladies. They are glorying in their own idolatry, in their own will, their own ideas, their own mindset. John Frame, who is an apologist, a Christian apologist, he says that unbelief in scripture really falls into two categories, atheism and idolatry. In other words, either clearly I just say there's no God or clearly I give my heart to some other God besides the Lord. And when he talks about this, these two options of unbelief, two categories of unbelief, atheism and idolatry, he talks about idolatry is not always being rational. And what he means by that is not that people who are idolatrous don't think, but what he is saying is the way by which we end up following idols is not always led by our, our rational thinking. In fact, our affections can lead us astray. Oftentimes our heart chooses things before our mind even catches up in our mind as I've heard it said before, justifies the things that our heart has chosen. What are some of the ways that we develop idolatry? Well, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a year where there's been cries for social, racial justice, in the midst of the election season, man, there's a lot of ways to have idolatry. We could have idolatry around just stop, look, put a stop to all of it, um, that we really want comfort that that is the idol, the thing that we seek. Or we could be uh, uh, putting our hopes, our ultimate hope in, somebody just needs to fix this. We just need to get the right leaders and the right people and the right plan just to fix all of it. That's our ultimate hope. By the way, an idol is when we take a good thing and we make it ultimate or maybe not a good thing, but that it becomes our ultimate aspiration, the thing that dictates everything else. Perhaps in an election season, we put our hope in our government in one way or another, that we would hope that the United States would be the fullness of the kingdom of God and that the two would have a one-to-one -one relationship. Perhaps our hope in our idolatry and the anxiety of the election would be about your candidate of choice. You think it's this person or it's that person that's going to make all the difference. And if we could just get enough people lined up to make that happen. No matter how we formulate our idolatries, the reality is, is all of them ground us into what is earthly thinking. Beyond how we feel about the pandemic and feel about the election, uh, there's plenty of people to imitate. In fact, in our idolatry of the heart, which John Calvin says that the heart is an idol factory, um, 
as we make steps towards one direction, there are plenty of people who will help us further that journey of idolizing one entity or another one person or another one political party or another one candidate or another one reality or another. What is your hope in the midst of all of this? Either we are in intentionally imitating those whose hope is in Jesus Christ, or we are being influenced, whether we recognize it or not, by uh, earthly things. I, I, I brought up a few weeks ago social media, and part of what happens in social media is that we are not the customer when we are logging on and we are scrolling and looking at stories and whatnot. We are actually the product that's being sold to advertisers. And it's that subtle change that is going on in our hearts that truly is the product of what is being sold. We have lots of encouragement along the way in that process. Not that all social media is bad, but certainly if we go down certain roads, there's a lot of help to create idols. Where is our hope? Our hope, our hope is in our true king. As we await the king, this point to, uh, Paul says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. That term, um, it obviously references on one level for what would be familiar for Philippians, that they were, well, at least some of them, citizens of Rome. Now, Rome, you could be a resident, but not a citizen. Um, that's a little more complicated. But my point is that they would have that understanding that that is the realm in which citizenship is most often talked about. In fact, Paul himself was a Roman citizen. And so for him to say, we, our citizenship is in heaven, is to put a very different spin on what citizenship means. And in fact, it puts the whole aspect of the gospel and the kingdom of God in a very different place than the political realm and other social issues and concerns. Um, Roman citizenship was a big deal. At one point, Paul, as you read through Acts, he appealed to the fact that he was a Roman citizen and should be treated as such. Part of the universal religion of the Roman Empire was to worship the emperor. And so that you would have peoples from different um, subgroups and they had their own communal gods that they would worship. But one of the ways that the Roman Empire was successful, at least in the eyes of the Roman Empire, was by having everybody worship the same God. And part of that was to worship the emperor himself. Paul uses this language that we are citizens of, of heaven and we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two words, Lord and savior, were actually used of the emperors. The emperor was called the Lord and the savior. That started in the years leading up to the birth of Christ and had continued and certainly was present in this particular time. And so for Paul to be saying that our citizenship is in heaven, that our Lord, our Savior is Jesus Christ would not uh, fall, fall flat to the ground on his hearers. They would recognize exactly what he means. He means that our citizenship is not of an earthly dwelling, 
And in fact, our greatest allegiance is not to the king, but is to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And certainly in our United States of America, we have the same temptation to make our citizenship here. And I, by the way, I recognize many of you are not American citizens and it's, this is not in any way to create a distinction, but just in the light of what is happening, um, this is how I'm uh, uh, approaching the text. Um, but certainly we have um, the temptation to make our citizenship in whatever country we're from to be our primary identity. But Paul's saying, no, your citizenship is of a different order, a higher order of the kingdom of God. And we also have the same temptation to make emperor worship part of our sort of pantheon of gods with the lowercase g here in the United States to make worship of the president and other leaders who are political to be the thing that we put our hope in. Paul says, no, we await a different king, a different savior, a different Lord. The one in his pedigree is the cross because ultimately our king truly understands what's wrong with our world and only our king had the power to do something about it. We await our king. We await our king. The Lord wants to make sure that we are not being formed in this season of election by our hope for one party or another, one figure or another. Uh, it's interesting when we think about social media and how it can impact us. The way it is all set up is that there are big computers that they keep track of every single move that we make online, everything that we scroll through, everything that we pause on, everything that we click on, and it clicks and, and, and it keeps in, in track of all of this. And these computers, they're programmed to, to um, they're trying to predict how we will respond if we are fed certain information. And so what it does is it gets better and better the longer we spend on it. And what ends up happening is if we click on things that, for example, are political, we get further and further into that whole realm and such that on social media, we can end up in an echo chamber. And we see the world through that lens and we wonder how could anybody else see or think differently. And it, we don't, it's because we're in this realm and there's others that are in different realms and all of us have a different feed. We're not all looking at the same things because of the way it's set up. The Lord wants us to be sure that our hope is not in whatever is being presented to us in these various forums. It's not in what is happening on Tuesday or subsequently afterwards, all after whenever the votes are counted. Our hope is in him. We serve a king that we did not elect. He elected us. We serve a king that we did not put in charge of our country, but he brought us into his kingdom. We serve a king whom we did not choose, but he chose us. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and it is him that we await his second coming. Our third point here, here is hope in true renewal. Hope in true renewal. That's point three. Verse 21 says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious, glorious body by the power that enables him 
even to subject all things to himself. The object of our hope is our heavenly citizenship in Christ Jesus. And Jesus has the power. He's coming back and he is actually going to bring a full renewal. When we look at the story of redemption in, in the scripture, sin has affected all of society, all of creation, not just the spiritual world, but the physical world. And we think about politics, it's very much politics, by the way, and, and the government is honestly a part of God's plan, but not in the way that we most often think about it if we are engaged in a heavily intensified identification with one party versus another. God's redemption plan includes everything physical, everything spiritual, and everything else. Because, as it says, when he comes back, we will be transformed. Our lowly body will be like his glorious body. Uh, philosophers in the Greek, ancient Greek world would have a dualism. They would have said, heaven, good, earth, evil. Therefore, we should be about what's good and not what about not about what is evil. But the gospel is different. The gospel doesn't say heaven, good, earth, evil. The gospel says, and scripture says, when God created the heavens and the earth, all of it was good. And as a as a result, God's plan to redeem is both spiritual and physical. Not only will our souls be saved, but we also will receive a glorious physical body like that of our Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. So our hope is in true renewal. You know, as we think about political options or the ways that there is a narrative that the two main political parties they give us, one party would say, um, you know, on the, the, the right is, is to look backwards and say the good time was in the past and our effort should be to make things like they used to be and to get it back to what it used to be. On the left, it's the narrative is, well, we are going forward to a, a utopian hope in the future and we should put our, our work in towards making the future better. Two divergent narratives. And it's easy as Christians to sort of get on board with one narrative or the other and wonder, well, how could anybody think that that other option is good? What's interesting when you think about that is that both narratives are actually in some ways borrowed from Christianity. And there's a lot of resonance in both narratives from what it, the scripture talks about. On the one hand, we look at the past of human existence and it was good. What God created, what God had with his people in the garden was good. And part of redemption is re-undoing what was, what was done there. It was, we, as, but it's also true that as we look forward into the future, that where we are headed is a better reality. It's not a human-oriented utopia, but it's God renewing the heavens and the earth. And so both of these narratives are uh, resonant with Christianity, but both of those narratives are also dissonant with Christianity. In both of those efforts, the centrality of what is happening is on human effort. But as believers, we are called 
to recognize that God is sovereignly in control of all of human history, that all of the nations are in the palm of his hand, including our nation. And as such, there really isn't um, one party or another that is going to bring us to what God desires. Those parties weren't set up to do that in the first place. Our hope is in a different kingdom altogether. What does this mean for us? Actually, let me just say this last verse. Therefore, brothers, in uh, chapter four, verse one, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The gospel is of a higher order than political parties. It, it's not a third way. It's just of a different order altogether. When Jesus sought his disciples, he sought Simon the zealot, and Matthew, the tax collector. Simon was on one extreme. He wanted to overthrow Rome, even using force if necessary and be violent. The tax collector, Matthew, would have gone and extorted people as he collected taxes from them. These two men and others within the realm of Jesus's ministry represented the right and the left politically, yet Jesus brought both into his fold. The gospel is of a higher order than both of the political bents. He says in his ministry, you should pay taxes on the one hand to Caesar, but he also says you should give to God what is God. He's limiting the order of politics and saying there's a higher order, and that is the kingdom of God, and that is that we are created in his image. He says in one instance, you should beware of the leaven of the Herodians. The Herodians were a political party who had aligned themselves with Herod, we don't know a whole lot about them, but certainly what it does mean is that we should be mindful of just putting our hope in an earthly realm of politics. Not that we disengage from politics, but our hope is not there. In his encounter with Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's of a different order. I could call forth angels and they could fight for me, but my kingdom is not of this world. The gospel is of a higher order and should challenge us no matter where we are politically. Secondly, don't reduce politics to just this one issue or it's just that one issue. The gospel is much more robust. The scripture is much ro more robust in what it teaches us about ethics than to say, well, it's really about this or it's really about that. That's not to say that that can't be the reason why you vote one way or the other, but it's just to say that shouldn't be the measure by which we, we judge other people and how they vote or didn't vote. As a community that's called to be campus and community transformed by Christ to renew the world, students, don't look at the older generations and say, well, why do they vote like this? And those in the older generation shouldn't say to the younger, why do you vote that way. We should not demonize one another and reduce politics to one issue or another. It is so much more complex than that. And in fact, if we can embrace that reality, I, it, would, it would bring down the tension and the polarization um, in our world. We have access to almost anyone in the world in social media. And it's important for us to recognize we need to filter who we are listening to and what we are watching and look at it through the lens of being called part of the heavenly kingdom, citizens of heaven. Because 
when we're on social media, the gradual, slight, imperceptible change in your behavior is the product. That is what is app there is that's the whole game. Not to say that we can't use those platforms, but it's important to recognize what is happening. And the good thing about that though is it works in the other direction. If we imitate those whose image, whose identity is in the kingdom, that gradual, slight, imperceptible change works to help us to grow in that as well. There's a lot more I could say, but friends, I wanna encourage us that in this season, ultimately, to not put our hope in earthly things, to put, to put our hope in the King of Kings. That yes, as citizens in a democratic uh, republic, we have a level of power in putting forth our vote, but we have more power as citizens of heaven, whose king is the King of Kings and whose sovereignty is over all of history that if we commit to praying for our nation and praying for our elected officials, no matter which way the election goes, no matter how long it takes to figure it out, that we could have hope because ultimately our King, our true King is coming to renew things in according with his kingdom. If we are in a place where we think our party or our, our political favorite is the Messiah and the other, alternative is the devil. We are messed up and mixed up all together. We are down on this lower earthly order. Jesus is calling us up to a higher order, to be marked by the gospel, to be transformed in our thinking, to, have imi to imitate those whose way is following Jesus and to put our hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's a lot that I tried to say and said here, and there's so many different ways that it could, could be received. But ultimately, I pray that Holy Spirit, that your word would resonate in the heart of your people. Lord, we pray for peace over our nation, but we also pray for peace in our own hearts. Whatever anxiety we feel, it may not even be about the election. It could be about just trying to make it through this moment in time. Lord, let our hearts await the King, the true King, the King of Kings, who's brought us forth into his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.